Hello, this is Jeff Epstein, Super Volunteer in New Jersey. We are sitting here in the Jug Handle Inn, where both of us have neither been before, although we've passed it a million times. <clears throat> um, and we're about to have half-price wings. But uh, I am sitting here with... Can you tell us your name and tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Bruce Schwartz. Um, I uh, retired as an attorney at law. I uh, work part-time as a technical writer. I've been active in presidential and congressional campaigns off and on for most of my adult life. Uh, I live in Cherry Hill, where I'm active in the local Democratic Party. I'm a member of the Camden County Committee, and I'm backing Bernie Sanders for president. Okay, so for our international fans, all zero of you, um, <laughs> they were in New Jersey. Cherry Hill's in New Jersey. Um, so uh, can you tell us why do you... Uh, well, give us a little more of your history, because you're involved in government, correct? So can you give us a little more of that part of your history? Well, um, I'm involved in uh, local government as a volunteer. Uh, I, uh, as I said, I'm a member of the Camden County uh, Democratic Committee. Well, we have uh, Tony here who is running for freeholder, and he's collecting signatures to get on the ballot for Camden County. And uh, he generously took his petition away from us so we can keep talking. All right. So, uh, I'm sorry. You're, so, your local government history. Yeah. Um, I, I became active about two years ago in the Cherry Hill Democratic Party. And as a consequence of getting to know, uh, we're, we're pretty much a democratic town. Um, as a consequence of getting to know uh, a lot of people, including the mayor and most of the council persons, uh, I was asked to join the Zoning Board of Adjustment which is a local body that uh, in, in New Jersey basically has responsibility for certain decisions involving land use. Um, so, when, when, so this is your first official being in a government position? <laughs> yeah. I used, to, uh, I used to joke that I couldn't get elected dog catcher, but uh, to be a county committeeman, your name has to go on the ballot. So I, I uh, tweeted all my friends after I got elected to the county committee that, See, I could get elected dog catcher. Com did you compete against anyone? Well, it's not really much of a competition. Uh, these are, are party County committee is a party office. So it was a nominated slate of Democrats, and usually there's no serious opposition for one of these. Uh, you know, uh, so you got one vote. No. At least one vote. You at least got one vote. No, I probably got several thousand along with, you know, because we're down ballot from the council candidates. You know, it, your, your names go on the ballot in a real election for real political offices. Okay, so, so what is this position that you, that you do? Well, like, what's the capacity? Uh, well, are you talking about the Zoning Board or the County Committee? Pick your choice. Okay. The County Committee is a, uh, an, an organization of uh, the Democratic uh, Party, as is the Republican Committee for the Republican Party. Basically, uh, we're the people who um, decide on nominations for uh, public offices that the party's going to field candidates for. Now, sometimes there are uh, primary challenges, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty typical, especially in local elections, that these things are relatively uncontested, or I, w I would say often uncontested. Um, so the, uh, the consensus candidate of the uh, party committee 
becomes the nominee who goes on the ballot, uh, if it's uncontested, wins the primary election and goes on to the general election. Um, other than that, being a county committee person basically means you commit to work for the election of Democratic Party candidates at the time of the general election. So we basically have signed a contract with the party that says we will show up as volunteers, we will um, talk to our friends, we will do you know, what we can uh, to uh, help Democratic Party candidates get elected. So you're in the official Democratic apparatus then in New Jersey, so have you seen any of the shenanigans that, that you know, are so publicized about Bernie Sanders? Well, um... Is there any discouragement? Is there any, you know... It, it, it's an interesting question you've just put to me. Um, at, at my and I, level, I guess I'm jeopardizing your job by asking this question, or at least you answer it. <laughs> I'm a volunteer. There's no job here to jeopardize. <laughs> um... At the local level, Cherry Hill is a very blue town. Our, all of our council people are Democrats. Our mayor is a Democrat. And most of these people are, as far as I've ever been able to tell, good-hearted, public-spirited people uh, who are, are, are doing it because they believe in delivering good government. That's in Cherry Hill. There are you know, things that are said about, uh, about things that go on at the county level and at the state level. But I'm not personally familiar with any of that. Um, my observation about party politics is that, and, and I don't mean to make a, a nefarious comparison, um, I'm not, I in no way want to imply that the world is like the nightmare that George Orwell depicted in 1984. But it's useful to distinguish between what Orwell called the inner party and the outer party. Every political organization has a core of, of people at its center who, who dominate it. It's just the nature of organizations, uh, that the people who put in the most time and in some cases the most money come to uh, dominate the apparatus. And sometimes they do it for good purposes, and sometimes they do it to line their pockets. And you get all, history shows us that you get all kinds of interesting hybrids. Uh, back in the 19th century, the Tweed Ring was notorious for corruption. But it also delivered jobs and, uh, and, and patronage and services to its main constituency, who very much, who, who to a great extent were uh, immigrants and working people, who needed a leg up in an America that at the time was dominated by the native-born Anglo population. So it's, you, you get a mixed bag of things. Uh, back in, uh, in the 20th century, uh, Harry Truman, whom I consider one of our greatest presidents, uh, was kind of the flower that grew in the dung heap of the uh, Missouri Democratic uh, machine. So <clears throat> I have a, an interesting mixed opinion of, of political machines. In Camden County, um, you know, there, there, there are, there's a long, um, um, history of rumors about the way that the uh, county apparatus is a political machine, and it definitely is effective in delivering uh, votes to Democratic office holders. 
and uh, people who are, you know, New, New Jersey has this no- notoriety for being a pay-to-play state. But the way, you know, all, all political systems generate a certain amount of spoils system because people give jobs to their friends. And for me, the criteria is always, um, you know, do the jobs and the patronage go to people who do the job well, deliver services, don't exploit their connections to make undue profits. And sometimes that slips over the line and people are lining their pockets. But I personally have not gotten close enough to the center of things to see any evidence of that. Okay, so that's good. So, um, tell us why. I'm going to put in a plug here. Cherry Hill seems to be well run. Our mayor is a retired uh, businessman who doesn't take a salary and seems to be doing good things for Cherry Hill Township. And the extent to which that that extends outside of Cherry Hill Township, I'm not in a position to say. What's what's the mayor's name? The mayor is Chuck Kine. Chuck Kine. Okay. Um, all right. So, can you tell us how you discovered Bernie Sanders uh, when you when you, I mean, became more than just voting? You actually want to volunteer for him? I'm, I'm, actually, I guess I don't know if you have volunteered, but uh, that I volunteered. I just haven't done much work yet. Okay. So, so tell us about how you discovered Bernie Sanders and uh, why you why you like him. Well, I guess I I. I I listened to NPR quite a bit, and uh, I usually have uh, the MSNBC evening shows on in the background, you know, while I'm doing the routine work of life, paying bills, uh, household chores, things like that. So I'm sure I I knew of Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, long before he made his bid for president. I have a cousin who lives in Vermont. So I, you know, hear occasional news of uh, what's going on in Vermont politics, and Bernie's popped up over the years on the right side of uh, a number of issues, such as the Iraq War. And I was aware that he was the only uh, elected uh, Democratic Socialist in the United States Congress, which I always thought was interesting. And uh, if I can talk a little bit about family history. Uh, my grandfather was an actual socialist, um, a member of the Norman Thomas Socialist Party. He knew Thomas. He knew Eugene Debs. So um, I, I've never had, you know, the, the reflexive fear of the word socialism. And just and just to McCarthy era. Just to interject, uh, Eugene Debs, along with Martin Luther King, and uh, I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt, are at least the three. Three of the people that I know are, are Bernie Sanders' big influences. Yeah. Well, when I look at Bernie Sa- Sanders' uh, positions on the issues over the years, um, I'm, I'm not sure why he chose to style himself as a democratic socialist, because in most things he's not particularly far to the left of the positions that Franklin Roosevelt advocated. You know, so uh, I, I think of Bernie Sanders' candidacy as offering us a return to the unfinished business of the New Deal and the Fair Deal. And Martin Luther King's. Well, yeah, of course. Um, uh, I, when, when I think of civil rights, um, most, most of, of, the, uh, of the legal framework for establishing equality in this country has been accomplished. We probably have 5% to go on that. 
And the rest of it... 5% to go on what again? 5% to go on uh, fixing the legal framework in the country. We have to push back against uh, these attempts to uh, legislate uh, discrimination in the form of uh, religious freedom acts. But... Um, Bernie Sanders wants to tax churches. I just learned that. Tax churches? Well... I, or I, maybe I'm off, but I, I, heard, I had just heard that, and I have to I think, guess find out if that's truly true. I think that's probably wrong. Uh, he may want to tax uh, aspects of churches which are uh, non-religious and basically businesses. And some of, these, some of these mega preachers who are putting millions of dollars into their own pockets certainly ought to be taxed. Yeah, definitely didn't do research. I just saw something on Facebook, some headline, and found it curious. So, Yeah, um, I, I, that, that's, that's a new one on me, and it would certainly be politically unpopular. And All right, well, then I didn't say that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm talking about with that particular issue. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 don't, I don't see anybody trying to tax you know, actual churches, but the, the ancillary uh, operations that are effectively run as, as businesses for the benefit of uh, millionaire preachers, that's something that uh, has, has been abused over the years, and he might be looking at that, although I don't know why he would want to make it an issue at this time, because there's I, so many other I, things I on must the table. be wrong. I must be just completely wrong. Okay. I did not do research. I just happened to see something that's, that surprised okay. me. So, Well, then you'll probably edit this part out. I have a feeling this will be my first edit. Go ahead. Okay. Um, question. Um, so, okay, so what do you like about Bernie Sanders? Well, as I said, uh, he's basically advocating not much that's uh, left of the New Deal and the Fair Deal. Um, the, um, the, the economic system in, in this country has, in fact, gotten us into a second gilded age where the rules of the game are rigged in favor of the people who've already got the concentrated wealth. And I believe that that is harmful to the country, both because it's unfair and because it doesn't make good economic sense. Uh, the good economic sense part is uh, you, you could look at arguments that are being made by economists like uh, Paul Krugman and uh, academics slash politicians like Robert Reich, um, you know, who are pretty much my uh, go-to guys on, on issues of this kind. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the existence of great disparities of, of wealth and power leads to a situation where a lot of people are effectively alienated from the society. It leads to hostilities within the society which ultimately are going to result in a lot of harmful knockoff effects. Um, uh, poverty is, is unhealthy for people. <clears throat> it it uh, breeds uh, the conditions that lead to crime and mental illness and a whole host of social pathologies. And it leads to um, you know, what an earlier time might have called class resentment. It's getting rich off of the back of people instead of getting rich, you know, with letting everybody else have at least a minimal standard of living. Yeah. Um, there, there are some things in our society that, that, that mitigate these things somewhat. I was uh, looking at a program the other night on, uh, I think it was 60 Minutes, uh, which was rerunning a program they did about uh, the Giving Pledge, where... Uh, 
billionaires uh, led by Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are pledging to give away uh, at least half of their fortunes and not leave it to their children, which is you know, a, a great thing, but... Uh, when they die, it's a great thing. Yeah, when, well, and some of them are giving it away before they die. You know, and that, that, that's a noble thing, but we shouldn't have to rely on philanthropy. Yeah, Charles to... Dickens. Charles Dickens, it's, it's begging for a minimal standard of living instead of, instead of being secure yeah. that you have a minimal standard of living. Yeah, in, in wealthy modern societies, um, the, the floor should be set at a living wage, at the very least, possibly even, even higher than that, and I personally don't have anything against people getting rich, but they should get rich in ways that create benefits for the rest of society. They shouldn't be able to pass on all of their wealth to uh, children who haven't earned it. Um, and they should not be able to appropriate all of the wealth which is created by the people who work for them. In other words, um, the, I, ideally we shouldn't need redistribution because the initial distribution of benefits from, um, from, from business and wealth-creating enterprises should be spread more fairly. Um, and I think that's what Bernie Sanders is talking about. And if you have a system like market capitalism, which uh, tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few people, then you should indulge in a certain amount of redistribution through the tax system. The natural form of capitalism is very few incredibly wealthy and everybody else really poor. Well, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a natural uh, form of capitalism. With zero regulation. With zero governmental regulation. Well, there's, there's always governmental regulation. Uh, it, it, it's a myth to say that uh, laissez-faire capitalism is completely unregulated because it only survives because there's a legal framework that allows the capitalists to uh, retain their wealth as against people who would take it away by uh, violence or other means. Uh, that's the whole system of property rights and it's always enforced by a legal framework backed by the armed might of the state. So there, there, there's always government in the background of every social system. Um, so capitalism is not natural. It's created by a framework of law. And it's, it's just that uh, what we think of as uh, laissez-faire capitalism is a system of law that's dominated by the people who already own the capital. Once upon a time, during the feudal uh, centuries, it was land that was the primary form of wealth, and later it became uh, various other forms of capital, including machinery, and the legal right to command human labor. Um, you know, in, in the darkest era, that was slavery, and in, after slavery, it was what we sometimes call wage slavery. Was that recording? Yep. Okay. It's all good, I know. It's all uh, very low tech here. <laughs> all right. I don't want to give the idea that I'm, that I'm anti-capitalist. Um, and I don't think Bernie Sanders is either. Um, you know, we, we can't argue that uh, the capitalist system hasn't produced a lot of 
wealth and technological advance, and that the experiments with what you might call the, the extreme forms of socialism, and here I'm talking about the Soviet Union and communist China before uh, it uh, enacted market reforms, it's, it's, it's unquestionable that those forms of socialism, the, call it totalitarian socialism, were disastrous from both an economic and a social welfare point of view. They were horrible places to live. Um, but experiments with what we might call milder forms of socialism, and here I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Northern European countries, have, as far as I can tell, worked out pretty decently. Um, you know, surveys seem to indicate that the people who live in these countries are pretty satisfied with their way of life. So, um, you know, uh, moving the United States closer to uh, European-style democratic socialism or Canadian-style socialism strikes me as a good thing. Um, <clears throat> I have a slogan which I'd like to try out, which I'd be thrilled if I ever heard it come from Bernie Sanders, and it's this. Markets do many things well, but they don't do everything well. And democratic socialism is, to a great extent, about providing those public goods that a market capitalism system either can't or won't provide to the great majority of people. Yeah, so it's, at the very least, we need a society where the rich can get as rich as they like as long as everyone has a minimal standard of living. I wouldn't even call it minimal. I, I, I don't know exactly what the, the level of a decent standard of living is, but uh, if, if we sat down and started uh, you know, counting things out, you know, everybody should have a roof over their head, everybody should have uh, indoor plumbing or whatever technology is going to uh, supersede it, you know, when we stop pouring so many uh, resources down the toilet. Um, you know, in, t in today's society, everybody needs access to the Internet. Um, and th there are precedents for this sort of thing. During the New Deal, for example, um, Roosevelt established the Rural Electrification Administration to bring electricity to every home in America. And that was wildly successful, both from a social justice point of view and from an economic development point of view. Uh, once people had electricity in their homes, they could get radio, and radio connected them to the world in the 1930s and 1940s. And the Internet does the same thing today. So it's pretty obvious to me that uh, everybody should have access to the Internet. And if we're going to have poor people, then we should, you know, I would prefer to see a society in which we no longer had poor people. But if we're going to have people with lesser means, then public subsidies should provide Internet access. Simple as that. So, um, let me ask you a very specific question. I'm curious if you know the answer to this, but I've heard complaints that Medicare for all, universal health care, right. that people who don't like it are worried that <clears throat> waiting in lines too long, that they come to America because we have the best health care, that people that have universal health care in other places that they don't like it, that their lines are too long, that it's not good enough, that they actually choose to come to the U.S. 
to, and I'm curious, I don't understand this issue to, to talk about it at all. This is just the criticism that I hear. And I'm curious, do you understand that particular issue? And, uh, you know, what's the response to that? I have a cousin in Baltimore who is uh, coming close to the end of his career as a practicing general uh, GP physician. And we go back and forth about this all the time. He is, has come around to the position where he actually is in favor of Medicare for all because the, the, the various experiments over the past 40 years in, um, in, in trying to curb the uh, rising cost of, of health care in this country and dealing with the various problems that are created by insurance company have made practicing medicine you know, extremely unpleasant for quite a lot of the doctors and uh, have kept a lot of people from having, in the United States, from having adequate medical care. And there seems to be, uh, when, you, when you look at it in the press, that, yeah, there are people in countries like England where there are lines uh, for elective procedures, you know, wait times, things like that. There are some things that uh, aren't made available. They've got drug formularies, same as the insurance companies impose on us here. And apparently, you know, the you know, people who have the means will sometimes go to the United States to get something that they can't get in their home country, at least not as quickly as they would like. Um, I don't know that for a fact. I haven't really researched it much myself. But the surveys also seem to indicate that most people in these countries are satisfied with their overall level of health care. And they get it at a much smaller national cost than we do. Dramatically so. Yeah, right. Dramatically so. Because their, their industries, their health care industries are not built on private medical insurance. The, the yeah. Obamacare is bolted on top of private industry. Right. So everything has to go through their profit filter and their... Yeah, the, the American healthcare system is an enormous, uh, what the engineers call a kludge and, and, and a compromise. Uh, it makes the private industry happy. That's the only way it can happen. At least that was the philosophy. Well, uh, it's my understanding that uh, some of, uh, the, uh, of the foreign countries um, have hybrid systems. Uh, I, I don't think you, you know, even, there's, there's no such thing as a totally public system unless it's something like the VA where all of the physicians are on salary and are officially government employees. Most of our, most of our government operations... Uh, uh, you know, contract out to to private providers. I mean, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there are no governments in the United States that actually build roads or bridges with government employees. That kind of work is contracted out. But they, I would think that they have some pretty strict controls over them, as opposed to the med private medical industry currently. Oh, of course, there are. And the pharma private pharmaceutical industry currently, because that's how they can charge so much and. Yeah, of course, there are controls. And, you know, in fact, Medicare itself, and as a 65-year-old person, I've just recently gone on Medicare, so I'm about to learn, you know, for myself, personally, how it works. Although I can say that it worked pretty well for my mother, who was ill for pretty much the last 10 years of her life, and uh, <clears throat> never, almost never had to actually pay a bill. 
Um, you know, so Medicare seems to be a pretty good deal for senior citizens. I don't know whether we can afford to maintain it at the level that it, it's been for my parents' generation, but that's another issue. Um, but uh, Medicare, in fact, is a system which relies mostly on uh, private doctors and um, private or nonprofit hospitals, but uh, for the most part, they are not uh, operations that are exactly run by the government. But, you know, just as you say, Medicare exerts a considerable amount of, of control over it. Not always, you know, the kind of control that we ought to have. Uh, George Bush's uh, Medicare Part D prescription drug plan was generally conceded to be a giveaway to the pharmaceutical companies because Medicare isn't negotiating prices for drugs, which is insane. Um, I, I believe in Medicare for all. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Medicare will be centrally administered from Washington. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Bernie Sanders has talked about a Medicare for all system, which would delegate uh, some or all of the regulatory responsibility out either to the states or to regional entities uh, made up of uh, consortiums of states which is probably a good idea for a country the size of ours. Uh, I mean, we're, we're as big as Europe, and I don't see any reason why everything, you know, the entire administration has to be centralized in Washington. But you need a national health system so you have portability. You shouldn't have to, uh, you know, change your entire, uh, your entire uh, health insurance system just because you move from state to state, as you do now. Um, so, okay, so, but just to the fear that some people... In my head, I'm James Earl Jones. <laughs> okay, so unfortunately, we had a, a, a inadvertent stopping, but we got a lot of good stuff in there. So I'm I'm going to uh, thank you very much for all of your insight. I appreciate listening to you and, and your um, you know all your perspective and experience that I obviously had not had an opportunity to have. So um, why don't you tell us your name one more time? Okay, my name is Bruce Schwartz, and whoever's listening, I hope you'll. Get out and work for Bernie's election. Wouldn't hurt to send a few dollars. Okay. Thanks, everyone.